Hello everyone and welcome to this new episode of Pacific Talks Season 2. In this podcast, I engage in active conversations with my guests to talk about global challenges through a Pacific perspective. This is the second part of my conversation with Lord Fusitua, where we discuss the technical and social challenges that Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies can represent in the Pacific and how he plans to overcome them. So now, on to the second part of my conversation with Lord Fusitua. Yeah, eventually it seems to me that this was just like, that was a tragedy that happened to Tonga. But when I hear you talking about it, it seems like it's even more justifying what you're trying to achieve through blockchain and kind of reinforcing exactly. your, your strategy. It's, so can can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, it's, it's um, ironic that the year that we are intending to put the bill up to parliament for legal tender, um, ironically, circumstances showed us that when everything else failed, Bitcoin was the only thing that didn't. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, anyone that was into minds about its utility uh, has now seen that uh, it is when all other utility uh, dissipates the utility of Bitcoin remains because it is uh, it's built to be able to survive an extinction level event. That's why in the block size wars, you don't want the larger blocks because you need a more robust network for that to happen. Uh, the, the Bitcoin that I airdropped into Tonga, I had hoped that they would have thought ahead. They're there. Vision didn't go where mine would have. Had I been in Tonga, as soon as you airdrop the Bitcoin in, then you can turn the whole nation into a mesh network. So Mm. all the Wi-Fi routers only connect to each other, not to the internet. All the radio wave uh, and cell phone towers connect to each other and not externally. So you form a big nationwide intranet and then you can transact in Bitcoin throughout the whole country without requiring any internet access at all. All you need is that one node that uh, can receive um, data from the Blockstream satellite, and then you can use satellite phones to send uh, the data in return back to the blockchain. So because Bitcoin is built uh, like a survivalist's monetary system. It's built on very low, uh, small data blocks that can exist on radio waves if effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't need broadband internet to broadcast and receive uh, the Bitcoin blockchain. You can do it over uh, uh, radio waves and frequencies that um, like the ones, uh, the only ones that exist in an extinction level event. Mm. So uh, I think it's ideally built and 
the fact that um, it worked when everything else didn't was a hundred percent in its favour, mm. and then the economic collapse um, which followed has uh, highlighted that even more. People were waiting to get Western Union um, remittances from overseas, mm. trying to buy food, but with the internet down, both the banks and Western Union have no connection overseas. They're both reliant on the internet. So, again, in that aspect, Bitcoin, again, worked where where they failed. So the use cases, the remittances, Tonga is completely dependent on remittances, but the only remittances that could possibly get through are remittances on Bitcoin. Mm. So its use case was multiplied even more by the economic collapse. So, yeah, 100%, you're absolutely right. The fact that this disaster occurred uh, made it uh, even more apparent uh, and how useful it is. And not just how useful, um, I've often said this, uh, Bitcoin in a OECD Western uh, capitalist democracy uh, is a consumer investment choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a country where you have hyperinflation, like Nigeria or Venezuela, where you need a wheelbarrow of your local currency to buy a loaf of bread, or in a country that's remittance dependent like Tonga, it's not a consumer investment choice, it's a survival choice. Mm. You need it. Uh, it's salvation. It's freedom from poverty because. Mm. Um, it's not just the fact that the rails work quicker and faster. It's the fact that you get 100%. So if you send $100 on Western Union to Tonga, I'm only going to get 70 because Western mm. Union's going to eat 30 So that that 30 in a country where 150 to $200 is the average weekly wage, that's a difference between my kids going to school with breakfast or without breakfast at $30. Yeah. So if West, if Bitcoin's giving me that extra 30%, then it's got impacts right across the board. It means my kids can eat breakfast, but it also means because, as in most um, emerging market economies uh, that have low income tax revenue for governments, governments impose consumer uh, consumption tax on all goods and services, so that even if you don't pay tax, if you're a poor farmer, you don't drive anywhere, so you don't have a driver's license because you don't have a car. You don't fly anywhere, so you don't have a passport. Uh, That means you can't have a bank account, which means you don't pay any taxes. But if government puts 15% consumption tax on a fishing net, then you still have to pay tax because you're buying the fishing net. The difference with Bitcoin is you're now buying 30% more fishing nets. So you're giving government 30% more uh, capital that was not in the economy yesterday. Mm. So government's revenues go up by 30% as well. So the number, the, the money that they spend on hospitals and schools and roads goes up by 30% just by switching to Bitcoin. 
the global remittance industry is 700 billion a year. 190 billion, between 190 to 200 billion, is lost on fees. Mm. The American aid budget nationally, globally, is 34 billion a year. Mm. All the projects to feed people in Africa, clean drinking water, anti malaria, 34 billion a year. That goes into 200 billion seven times. So you'll do seven times more good for poor people around the planet than all the US aid merely by moving from Western Union to Bitcoin on Lightning. Mm, yeah. Although there's, there's one, um, I'd say, issue that comes with uh, Bitcoin that is always in the conversation, that's the energy yeah. usage of Bitcoin. It takes a lot of energy to mine Bitcoin. Uh, one way um, that you approach the, the problem is using geothermal energy. And again, that goes back to the recent news right. in Tonga, where the volcano eventually is the source of energy. Uh, so do you think that's the way to manage this energy issue that Bitcoin uh, has? And, and do you, in your plan to develop Bitcoin in Tonga, yeah. do, you, do you envision it just for the population or do you even plan to become a hub for mining because of this huge source of energy that you have? Uh, That's a great question. That's a great question. Firstly, I'm going to uh, slightly challenge the premise in that it's, yeah, without a doubt, Bitcoin mining uses a lot of energy, but all up, it's 15 basis points. Mm. So it's less than it's less than one percent. It's point zero, uh, I think zero three percent of global power usage. So legacy media is owned by legacy finance. Mm. So every legacy media outlet is going to tell you that Bitcoin, Ethereum, all cryptocurrencies are going to boil the oceans. You and me live in Polynesia, the hub of where climate change hits worst. Mm. So we are not going to downplay anything that really does affect the planet um, as climate change. Because I've been in Kiribati waiting to go to Parliament because high tide came in and the water is at ankle level in the building, so we can't use the building. And we've all got to stand on the desks for six hours while the tide goes out. So we, you and me, know what climate change looks like. It doesn't it's not the conversation that my colleagues and I, who go to the UN General Assembly every year, um, at sept in, sept every September in New York, and discuss these with all these global three-letter word, three-letter organisations over coffee in Manhattan. That's not climate change. Climate change is what you and I see uh, on a daily basis. So. Uh, Bitcoin mining, uh, it's simply not the major cause of, of this. 15 basis points is less than Christmas lights. So the amount, the amount of electricity it takes to keep Siri and Alexa on, so your device, if it powered down completely, when you say, um, Alexa, it, you need it to be just slightly on to be able to function, for that function to work. 
So Bitcoin mining uses less than the Siri and Alexa function. That's how much electricity those two functions work. So first of all, we have to understand Bitcoin mining uses 15 basis points. Uh, the largest mining uh, concentration is now in North America because it's moved out of China. 60% of Bitcoin mining in North America is green energy. Now, it's renewable energy. The national grid in the US is 12%. So Bitcoin mining is nearly six times more uh, renewable uh, than the whole U.S. national grid. So putting the usage aside, the actual data aside, your question is a great question. So whether Bitcoin mining uses a lot of energy or not, geothermal mining is an efficient use. So let's say, one, let's accept the premise Bitcoin mining uses too much energy. Let's just pretend it does. So geothermal mining is a great answer to that. Why? Because it's got a zero carbon footprint. Uh, why is it particularly good for Tonga? Because Tonga's got 21 volcanoes and only 100,000 people. So that's one volcano for every 5,000 people. It only takes two megawatts of electricity to service 5,000 people. So it only takes 40 megawatts of electricity to service 100,000 people. Those 21 volcanoes produce 95 megawatts each. So our volcanoes produce 2,000 megawatts. Tonga only needs 40 megawatts. So we have 1,960 megawatts with nothing to do. So what do you do? You do Bitcoin mining. So Bitcoin mining at a nation state level will take up um, not just a nation state level, uh, a nation state level in both national level, but local Bitcoin mining as well. So if we have geothermal mines on all the volcanoes and then we run, um, you know what a hash hut is, right? Uh, an ant mine, uh, an ant box. So basically a 40-foot container full of mining units. If we have one of those for every family in the country, that's only 20,000 units because there's only 20,000 families. Uh, that will be able to have national-level geothermal mines at all the 21 volcanoes and an ant box or hash hut for every family in the country, that still takes less than 400 megawatts. Mm. On those hash huts, so for a, for a country that earns, where people earn on average $150 to $200 a week, these hash huts produce about two to 4,000 USD in Bitcoin a day. So for a family to go from $150 a week to two to four K USD a day, that basically turns Tonga into a little Dubai overnight. Mm. So every family, instead of having an oil well, will have uh, a hash hut, an ant box. Mm. So Bitcoin communities are strange community. They like seeing, as I'm sure you know, they like seeing uh, underdogs win. So the Bitcoin community 
is very supportive of seeing a little poor nation like Tonga succeed. So the tech and the hardware for the geothermal mining, as you see in El Salvador, that's already been donated to Tonga free, gratis, completely free. The companies that do this have offered it to me to set it up, put the hardware in, um, do all the necessary infrastructural uh, changes, run it and maintain it gratis. And the builders of the ant boxes have offered gratis the 20,000 units. 20,000 units is nothing to them for every family in the country. So Tonga can turn itself into an entirely Bitcoin um, propelled nation for free. Mm. Uh, practically overnight. It's in real terms, it's not going to be uh, up and running till about third quarter next year, um, beginning with uh, the legal tender bill in September, October. But for that to occur at all uh, is mind blowing. So, 400 megawatts, 440. That still leaves us leaves us about fifteen hundred megawatts. So, what we're going to do is those hash huts. We're going to have either two hash huts per family, or we're going to have half the hash hut to be miners, and the other half to be data centers. Mm. Yeah, to be uh, server storage. So, what happened in twenty fourteen when Tonga? Uh, finally got cable to the door installed and laid. It was funded by a 26 USD, it's about 42 Tongan million uh, project with the World Bank. So my mother was the Minister of Communications at the time. She's the one who negotiated the deal for the fibre optic cable. So because she's cheap, um, and wouldn't pay for their own ministry lawyer, and she's got a lawyer for a son that she can get for free, she made me do the legal negotiations. Um, so what I advised her was, uh, you've, you know, we're not going to get a deal like this again. Mm. So you should future-proof the network as much as possible. And she said, what do you mean? said, get as much hardware bandwidth in as possible so we don't have to keep upgrading. Mm. So what ended up happening is we got in enough bandwidth for a million people instead of 100,000 people. So Tonga won't need to upgrade its hardware for the next century. Um, I, I mean, obviously, technological changes will come mm -hmm. and there'll be uh, maintenance here and there, but... The fiber optic cable that's there can serve us extremely well for a century. So Tonga uses five gigabit for the whole country, up and down. We've got thousands of gigabit up and down. That's solving the technical issue, I would say. Now there's 
Another element that I would like to have your views on, and especially because, as you say, you're, you're a politics, but there's also the social element of, of Bitcoin. And we seen again yesterday uh, Warren Buffett uh, slashing Bitcoin, and, and we hear many critics about, about Bitcoin. So how do you make sure, and you, 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 you talked about the role of families in all this strategy. So how do you make sure that the population is on board and and how do you inform them clearly for them to to understand what's what's going to happen? Yeah. And the second part of the question is that Bitcoin is all about decentralization. So how do you get the other part on board, which is the government, and say, well, somehow Bitcoin goes against the principle of government and centralization? So how do you reconcile those two yeah. questions of the social aspects of yeah. Bitcoin and the evolution yeah. that comes with it? Yeah, that's that's a great question. So I'll just quickly finish the data bit so you sure, understand sure, where it goes. So um, we've got thousands of megawatts free still of the electricity from the geothermal uh, uh, wells and thousands of gigabit free. So and we ended up not paying for the cable at all. Uh, the World Bank ended up saying, you're not going to get the loan. Tonga uh, can't service the debt. So I insisted, I told her, Make, keep asking them why we can't get the loan. And she didn't understand why, but she kept doing it. And eventually we got the lady from the World Bank to say, because you're too poor, uh, you can't service the debt. So as soon as we have that on the record, then I told her, we've got the, we've got the cable. And she said, what do you mean? I said, because in the World Bank's charter, there's a thing called an LDN. It's the least developed nation. So if you are an LDN, they have to give you the money. Uh, you don't have to borrow it anymore. It's, it's a grant now. They have to give it to you mm. according to their rules. So the next meeting, my mum said, oh, all right, I understand we're too poor, but doesn't that mean we're an LDN? And as soon as she said that, the woman's mind clicked. So she saw exactly what we'd been pushing for in the beginning and she went, Jesus Christ, all right, <laughs> yeah. We'll organise the cheque to, to, to get the money across. Mm. Wow. So we got it all for free. So what happens is AWS's Southern Hemisphere headquarters are in Sydney. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have their server farms in New South Wales and Victoria. We ran the numbers and 0.01 of AWS's business is worth $200 billion, their Southern Hemisphere business. Mm. If we can even get 0.01% of that business, that's $200 billion annually. So Tonga's GDP is $500 million. That means from AWS... We can earn 400 years, four centuries of Tongan uh, economic activity in 12 months mm -hmm. just by doing that. So I've already uh, uh, signed a deal with Cisco. Cisco provides all the hardware and they provide the customers. So when Cisco comes in and builds the data center, they've already pre-sold it to Apple before they built it. Okay, so all I have to supply is the land mm. and Cisco's building everything. Hardware, maintenance, staffing, everything. They get equity 
uh, in return, uh, but they do all the, the heavy lifting because they're building it, they're maintaining it, and they're bringing in the customers. So when they build it, it's already been pre-sold to AWS. Mm. So that's the whole point of the data center. And then that still leaves over a 1,000 megawatts of electricity spare. So what do you do? You do what Alberta uh, and Canada does to New York and New Jersey. You export it across the border. So I just piped the electricity from Tonga to Fiji, Samoa, Tuvalu, Niue, and they can buy the electricity off us. We can make a profit and it's still cheaper for them than the diesel-powered electricity that they're, they're using now. Mm. So, sorry. So that's the logical conclusion of that part. So the social aspect, um, in order for people to understand, I began last year in June doing financial literacy workshops. Mm. Uh, we went, did a little bit of trial and error, and this had been my belief since the outset. You cannot understand Bitcoin unless you understand money. Mm. You don't understand money and how money works, the history of money, why fiat is where it's at now, uh, the petrodollar, then you won't understand why Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency uh, is of utility. So my uh, civil society teams that usually do my anti-corruption, uh, violence against women and girls, workshops in the villages. They went out and did financial literacy workshops since June last year. So they teach people how the barter system was not um, a primitive system, that barter was in fact the inception of modern money because the chicken and the basket of vegetables that were exchanged, the chicken's value wasn't only in and of itself. Uh, the chicken was a vessel of the farmer's time and energy, just the way money is. All the time uh, and energy it took to raise the chicken, to feed it, uh, it's not just the chicken's flesh uh, that gives it intrinsic value. It's the, it's the vessel of the farmer's time and energy so that your pay packet, when you go and work a 12-hour shift, in the meatpacking plant, the, your pay packet is exactly a, a vessel of your time and energy, the same way the chicken was for the farmer. All your time and energy in the power in the meatpacking plant is put into that vessel, which is your pay packet. And your hope is you can exchange that vessel for goods and services in future. Yeah. The problem with your fiat pay packet is you don't control the supply. You don't control its value and you don't control its purchasing power. That's all controlled by a central bank. Mm -hmm. So a central bank determines how much of your vessel of time and energy is allowed to go out. It determines the value of your time and energy by devaluing the currency uh, or printing too much of it. And it decides its purchasing power by this deciding on inflation and the CPI and the movements in the consumer price index. So that's the first failing of fiat. The second is you're not in control of the distribution of your pay packet. A, a trusted third party or custodian is always in between you and where you want your money to go. If you want to spend it, you've got to go to the ATM and get money out 
where you swipe your card and what does the store do? Their computer talks to whose computer? The bank's computer to ask permission to spend your own money. That's insane. If you mowed your next door neighbor's lawn and they gave you a cake in thanks in return, would you ask the next door neighbor down the road for permission to take a slice out of your own cake? No. That's effectively what you're doing with your money in the bank. You've been paid by your next door neighbor for mowing the lawn, but then you're asking a third party whether you can have a piece of cake or not of your own cake. So what Bitcoin does is it replaces that central supplier with math. It's already hard-coded, 21 million, that's the supply. End of story. It replaces um, the fluctuation in value and in purchasing power with the network, with the market. Bitcoin users, what we're willing to pay for Bitcoin is what the price of Bitcoin is. One Bitcoin, its value and its price, remember, are two different things. One Bitcoin is worth one Bitcoin, but the fiat price of one Bitcoin on today's market is determined by everyone else who uses Bitcoin. So you and our network of Bitcoin users, we decide the price because we decide how much we're willing to pay for it. So we replace the central bank. Then we replace the predatory commercial bank who does the validation and distribution. Instead of using central uh, commercial bank computers to validate our transactions, they validate the $5 trillion we spend each day just by hosting the computers that we do those transactions on they take 250 billion or 5% daily. So instead of having that central validator, we decentralize the validation to Bitcoin miners. So our network of fellow Bitcoin users do the validation and get the rewards. And I can become a validator if I want. All I do is buy an ASIC, connect it to the network and run it. And I'm validating my own transactions. So we become the validators. Uh, the decentralized network, so, and the distribution becomes peer-to-peer, no more intermediaries. So there's no trusted third party and no custodian. So when we teach people that, then they understand that if you have a telephone, a mobile phone with an internet connection in your pocket, you have a central bank and a, and a commercial bank in your pocket. Mm. Right? So once you understand the um, money basics, then we go, okay, wallet of Satoshi, um, moon wallet, non-custodial, so anyone can, uh, sorry, non-KYC, so anyone can download it. So you don't need a, 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 an ID like you would to open a bank account. You just download moon wallet of Satoshi off the app store it's got a consolidated balance, so it's easier for a no-coiner to understand. When you see 20,000 sats on the phone, that looks a lot better to your brain than 0.00002 Bitcoin. That's hard for a no-coiner to get their, their brain around. When you see it says 20,000 sats, and then underneath it says that's 5 USD, the consolidated balance of those two particular apps make uh, 
orange pilling no coiners or new coiners much easier. So the combination of the workshops in the villages for financial literacy, which teaches them what I've just told you over the last 10 minutes, plus those two apps, that's how we address the social aspect of the general population understanding Bitcoin. And when they go, when you show them, ask your cousin to get on his phone now and send you $100 in fiat because I'm not sure whether they have Digicel in French Polynesia, mm. uh, that phone company. You may have heard of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can send, yeah. So you can send fiat from a Digicel mobile overseas to a Digicel mobile in Tonga. Uh, or you can just get on the website like you do for Western Union. Mm. In Sydney, I get on the Digicel website, send $100 to Tonga. So we tell them, get your cousin, send you $100, uh, on digital mobile money and see how much you get and then get him to send you $100 on Wallet of Satoshi and see how much you get. And Wallet of Satoshi, you get the 400 Digicel mobile money, you get $85 because 15 goes in fees. So we're able to show them right there in real time the difference between a fiat remittance and a Bitcoin remittance. Um, and then at a governmental level, governments don't want to see uh, lose control. So our current king, in the early 2000s, he was the prime minister. Mm-hmm. So he oversaw loans from the World Bank where the World Bank forced austerity measures on us. They forced us. They said, okay, you'll get the loan, but you've got to cut all public spending. You're not allowed to spend on tertiary industry. So you can't build up your telecommunications sector. You can only spend on primary industry, on agriculture and fisheries, because like the Caribbean and like South America, we want to keep you as a plantation and, uh, and, a, and an aquarium for the West. That's your job is just to be a plantation for us. Mm. So we're not going to give you funding to develop your own uh, secondary and tertiary industries. And for that funding, you're not allowed to spend on schools, you're not allowed to spend on hospitals, uh, and you've also got to cut the wages of all government workers by 40%. So when we did that, we had the first and only riots in our country's 1,400-year history. So people torched uh, what was reported internationally as a pro-democracy, it wasn't pro-democracy, it was government workers angry at the 40% cut. And the 40% cut was forced on us by the World Bank. So this current king has been painted since then as the prime minister that took us to social and economic collapse. Mm. And that only occurred because of the World Bank. So this current king... I'm not going to speak for him, but I would hazard a guess, a monetary system that would see the back of the World Bank is not something that he would be very upset about. So it's like when Peter McCormack asked Naib, what, aren't you scared of the World Bank? And Naib said, well, these people haven't been really all that nice to us. <laughs> if you look back in history. So, yeah, it's exactly the same thing. Uh, These people haven't been all that nice to us. So 
a monetary system severed from them is something that, yeah, our government wouldn't be too upset about. As for them controlling the, the money, um, if the person who, because I vacated my, my seat uh, at the national general election in November, mm-hmm. um, I've been overseas for two years for medical treatment on full pay as an MP. So in good conscience, I couldn't take a third-year medical leave and still get paid by the taxpayer. So I said, um, and I would have gotten in again. My constituency, there's only three people because the lords only vote for each other. And in my constituency, there's only three lords, myself and my two cousins. And my two cousins have voted me in for the past decade because One's a prince and one's a farmer, and neither of them have any, any interest in politics. And they said, that's why we sent you to law school, so you can go and do all this bullshit politic work and leave us in peace. So, yeah, they've kept me in the house. So their intention was, don't worry about the public salary, just go, you need it to do the work. I said, no, nah, in good conscience, I can't take taxpayer dollars. Um, we also, because it was a national general election, that meant that it was a new prime minister would be elected. Mm-hmm. So the nobles needed every physical person on deck because I can do all the work, which I have for the past two years. I did all the work remotely for parliament for my duties, but I can't vote. You have mm-hmm. to be there in person to vote. So I told my cousin, who's the prince, the farmer said, no chance. So the prince said, oh, I asked him, please, I know you're a prince and you're supposed to just watch TV all day and do nothing, but you're my cousin and I need you. So he went in. So I vacated my seat uh, in November, but uh, my cousin is just there in body. All the legislative program is mine. All the decisions as to which way he's going to vote, uh, I will give him what to vote yes on, what to vote Mm. no on. Uh, So he will present the bill on my behalf in October. So that goes up to the House. Then our our, um, parliamentary sessions are simulcast internationally to our diaspora. Uh, We've got 100,000 Tongans in Tonga and 300 and about 40,000 overseas. So there's nearly four times more Tongans overseas. That's why remittances are our largest part of our economy. So we simulcast all our parliamentary sessions globally. So when my cousin gets up and says, all right, this bill is going to give every person in the country an increase of 30% in their disposable income because it's going to take all the Western Union fees away. Mm. So I challenge any politician here to come and tell the country why they shouldn't get an extra 30% mm. disposable income. So that's a, that's a hard bet for a politician to come and argue and tell the country, no, I don't think you should get 30% more disposable income. That's true. So that's going to be sort of the political strategy at finessing the government is to put them in a place where they're to come out against my bill, 
they are going to have to tell the country, no, we're refusing to give you that, the extra 30%. That's the only way you can cut my bill down is to tell the, the not just the country, but the other 300,000-plus Tongans around the world, mm. we're going to keep making you pay 30% to Western Union because, remember, it's the sender that eats the cost. They're the ones that send them in, so they're the ones paying Western Union because historically both can't, can't um, survive. If you want to send $100 to Tonga, if you send $100, Tonga only gets $70. If you want Tonga to get $100, you have to send $130. So one of you eats the cost. Yeah. Both of you can't, can't uh, go unaffected. With Bitcoin, both of you can eat. That's true. That means you send the 100, he gets the 100. So to cut down my bill, you're going to have to tell the people who make up 40% of our GDP why you're forcing them to keep spending an extra 30% you should be putting back in their pocket. This episode was the second part of a three parts total episode, so stay tuned for the final part coming up in the coming weeks. To continue to explore with us the challenges and benefits of Bitcoin and blockchain in the Pacific. Pacific Talks is a podcast hosted by me, Philippe, and produced by Pacific Venture Media. If you enjoyed this conversation, feel free to subscribe in any podcast platform of your choice. You can also share it on your social medias or with your friends, family or colleagues. And if you listen to it on a podcast platform, feel free to leave us a review. This is very important to us as it helps us to reach to more people. If you want to share your thoughts and ideas following this conversation, you can reach out to us directly by email, contact at pacificventury.com or on all our social platforms. Until next time, with another guest, another discussion on the challenges of the Pacific. Take care and see you soon.